risen. Nice, but come on. He is risen. Come on, this is, we're not getting there at all. We went down on, from the first one. He is risen. <laughs> there you go, there you go. All right, so I am, as you can tell, a little excited today. And the reason why is because once again, God has been doing this, he's just been doing this extraordinary thing for years now, where what we do is we just really work at trying to be obedient, at trying to get it right, just one second here. I got to pull this forward and I don't want to dump everything on the floor. Barely made it. What he does is, is that we be obedient to whatever it is that he's leading us to preach on in terms of series. And then what happens is when we get to a really important day like today, Easter, like the biggest day in Christendom, this, this holiday more than Christmas, he will have us be in the series, and he's been doing this for years. He will have us in the series be in the most amazing spot that just brings out this color and nuance of the day in this amazing way. And this year, almost more than any other, we are in a story in scripture from our series, which we did not plan it this way. God puts it together to where this is, you could not be in a better passage for Easter than where we are today. So you're going to see what that means, but just to sort of bring everybody up to speed, uh, this is the series that we're in, and it's, it's basically, it's not just Genesis. What we're doing is, is that we're looking at the whole of the Old Testament. We are moving right along, but we're taking out certain stories, and we're going deep into those stories. And the reason why is because we want to become a people of the book. We want to become a people who know what was going on back there in all those things, the kinds of things that don't really get preached about a lot anymore. Old Testament, it gets referenced, but it doesn't get really looked at and examined. And what ends up happening is there is this depth, this richness, this layering, this understanding that comes when you really know what God is doing and what he, who he is, who's revealed himself to be, who we are. When you, when you see all of these amazing things in the old, what it does is it two amazing things. First, it takes your walk and it makes it so much richer and deeper and layered and nuanced. Because now you understand all of that. But the one that's even more beautiful to me is you come to know God. I mean, for real. Because it's not just a verse here and a verse there and a little bit here and a little bit there. And you're kind of piecing it together and it can kind of move. All of a sudden, you're getting meat. You're getting depth. You're getting these things that he has done precisely to reveal himself. And so we're doing that, and it comes right out of the series that we did that Josh and Justine and Robert did, or Justine and Kevin and, and Robert, and it comes right out of that where we were learning about who God is, and he's just taking us to this next level now. So in order to bring everybody up to speed as to where we are, there's a thing that we touched upon last week when we looked at the days of creation that we touched on, but I need, you to go, I need us to go deeper today because it's going to mean a lot for this sermon. So, here's how it goes. In order to understand why God created a physical creation, there was, he was already existing in the spiritual realm. And he was already, he had beings that he had created and all of this kind of thing. That was already there. The spiritual realm was already there. So, why did he make a physical realm? 
the universe and everything that's in it? And the first level answer on that is, is free will. And here's what I mean by that. If God created mankind in the spiritual dimension purely, then there would never be a choice that any person would ever make to be with the Lord because he's there. Angels don't, make a, don't, angels don't wonder if God's there. They don't get together in a Bible study and try and figure out what are the evidences for God. The evidence for God is oh, that him right there. <laughs> and what God is trying to do is, is he's saying, I needed to create another realm, another dimension in order that beings could live, and here's the key now, in a way that even though they were still alive, in the technical sense, meaning standing upright, even though they were still alive and living and able to reproduce and all of these kinds of things, they could actually deny that there is a God at all. They could deny the one that created them, and they could deny everything that he did in creation. Now, he has filled his creation with evidences of himself abundantly, right? His fingerprint is everywhere in the ridges. The things that he created all speak to the creator. And so anybody who wants to choose to see that, to believe that, to search that out, is going to find massively how much God can be seen in the physical creation. But, now watch. Why did he do that again? He wanted to create free will, but that's not actually the real reason, is it? The real reason was, is because what God was wanting to do was to produce a being that was like him. In his image. Why? So that he could have a relationship with that being. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in relationship with one another, have been for eternity. And they are so loving the relationship that they have. They are so just, just filled with the, with the glory, with the wonder, with the beauty, and the love of this relationship that all of creation is just a God who's just going, I just want to create more. And he wants in particular to create more that is like him so that he can be with them and have a real relationship. You see it? This is what he's trying to do. In fact, let me put it this way. His goal and reason for physical creation is that we would say with absolutely genuine and free will, I love you, God. That's his goal right there. That's all of it right there. I love you, God. He has given people, if, see, if he had made us in a way that we didn't have that genuine free will, then we would have been what, robots? Would that have been a real relationship? Or would it, we would have been, if he would have made us lesser than himself, then it would have been, as a precursor to what we're doing, it would have been like Adam trying to have, you know, to have fellowship with a beast of the field. It's not the same thing. So what God was going after in this whole thing was, I want to get you to a place to where you're saying to me, by your free will, as your choice, I love you. And then we enter into the Trinity. We enter into the same thing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experience in the love that they have. And that's what God is trying to do.
He's trying to expand that love. So this is what it's all about. Today, we're going to see how unbelievably high the cost of that was. Higher than, as Christians were here for Easter, we kind of get how high the cost was. But I'm telling you, by the time we get done today, I think you're going to appreciate it was much higher than you even thought. The cost for God to do this was unbelievably high. Unfathomably, in fact, to the point where you got to wonder whether or not he should have done it. That's how high the cost was. And when we get there, then God is going to give you an Easter egg. The hidden thing. I had a sermon for this Sunday. As soon as I looked at the passage, I saw what it was. I went, oh my God, that's the perfect passage for this. And look at this thing. This is the perfect sermon for this. I can't wait. It would have been such a great sermon. But you'll have to come back some other day to hear it. Because as I was looking at it, all of a sudden the Lord came and he began to peel back. And I just, that's really the image I have in my mind. He began to peel back something and he began to say, I want you to see this. And I'm telling you, such a treasure. So that's where we're going today. Who's our prayer? Mario Vallada. <laughs> Who's choosing these people? Is God doing something here? Mario, thank you for what you're doing in this building. Thank you for coming out of retirement and for making this place where we meet just changed so dramatically from the remodel it's huge downstairs to we're now starting to see it up here there's still a lot more to come from fixer upper mario's doing the whole thing thank you mario for giving of your life to come and to make this family's life better because of you so thank you for that so you're the perfect person for this so pray for the sermon and lift up another church would you heavenly father i am so thankful lord to be here today with uh, all our fellow men and women and families, Lord, to hear your word. And Father, um, we've all come to just hear a, um, just something from the word of God through Kurt that you have laid on his heart, Lord. And um, we look forward to the word he stole from you this morning was nuance in this whole sermon. And um, we are just thankful, Lord, that we have a man of God as Kurt that studies and listens and um, brings um, something every Sunday that we can take with us, and especially today, Lord, that we can share with all of those that we know that could not be at uh, church today. Thank you, Jesus. And um, Lord, I don't want to just pray for one church. I, I think you're a big enough, God, that we can lift up every church today that is in the service. And Lord, we just pray that your message is, uh, goes out and is multiplied in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, now, video time. We've been doing these Bravo Project videos because they are phenomenal. You will see when you go to your soaps that we have put links in there for the applicable video, Bible works, Bible, I don't know what they're called, Bible Project videos. Okay, so you can see those in here, but I want to show you the one that has to do with Genesis and so on. So here we go. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. 
There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden, like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death, because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops, and there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. Which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. 
But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods, and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1-11 through is all about. As we work to understand the Old Testament more, as I said, one of the things that we're doing in our soap is that we've changed around the Old Testament section of it to roughly correspond to the 
if we're in Genesis, we're reading the book of Genesis during the time that we're preaching on it. And we're, in, we're linking these videos. And I just have to tell you, I couldn't more highly recommend these. I just think the level of subtlety, nuance, the level that they get is so much deeper than what I'm used to these kinds of things understanding. It's remarkable. So with that, here's what we're doing today. We're in chapter 2 and 3, and we're drilling down on a particular event, or actually two different events. And so here we go. The Lord God took man took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Do you hear what he said? You may eat of every tree in the garden. He's saying, you may eat of it, but don't eat of that particular one. You may, but don't. So then he says, but, the, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die, which we always take to mean going to the grave. God takes to mean being separated from him who is the author and the sustainer of life. So eventually it becomes a death to us, but anyway. So the point is, this part right here, there's that free will we were talking about. Right there, right at the beginning of the book, setting up the whole paradigm. Now, this is a somewhat controversial view in the whole of theology, but, you know, there it is. So, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, remember, God himself has never been alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Whenever you heard this word fit, Substitute for today the word like. I'm going to make someone like him, just like God was trying to do. Make someone like him that he can be in relationship with. So what happens is God had made out of the ground every beast of the field, every bird of the heaven, brought them to the man to see what he'd call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper like him. There was not found someone like him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he was slept, took one of his ribs, closed the place with his flesh. And that rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is the moment. Remember, we, remember what we said earlier. All of God's creation has his fingerprint, meaning his ripples, the evidence of him. All of creation has this. Now watch. God was trying to make someone like himself in order to be able to have a relationship with that being, right? With us. And now there's a ripple of that very same thing happening with Adam. Because he showed him all the beasts of the field and none of them was like him. Then he makes something like him and Adam says, that's it. This one's like me. This is one that I can have a relationship with. Do you see it? And now he's not alone. Therefore a man shall leave his father's mother, hold fast to his wife. They'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman answered properly at the beginning at least. No, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But the Lord said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Some of you have been here for a while have heard that sermon. Okay. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A lie. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. I love the video and how it pointed out. They already were like God. The problem was there was one part of God that they didn't know. And what was it? Bad. Evil. They knew God. They knew the garden. They knew goodness. That's all they knew. They knew love. That was it. And now they become aware of something horrible. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a light to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. But he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me is her fault. <laughs> now, lest we get the women on too high of a horse, she then says, what is it you've done? And she says, the serpent. <laughs> Nobody's owning it. Nobody's owning their own decisions. Nobody's repenting. Nobody's owning what they've done and asking for help. So bottom line, now we come to these three poems that it mentioned. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he's going to rule over you. The sermons galore through this, right? That you've heard before. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reached out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to walk the ground from which he was taken. Which is to say he was separated from life. He was separated from God. Okay. So this is the story that we're drilling down into. And the first thing that we have to note is God gave us free will. So if you caused a problem, what is the natural thing that we do when we cause a problem? I need to fix this. See it? I caused the problem. I made the choice so I can fix this. And I want you to hear arrogance right now. This is what we all say, and I want you to hear hubris in it. I caused the problem. I can fix it. I can make myself right with God. Now, we're going to do something. Some of you have seen this before, but I want you to, I'm going to go through this 
not quickly, but I'm going to go through it in a pretty good flow because I want you to see something. I want you to see how God responded to our impulse to try and fix it ourselves. And here's the answer. He let us try and fix it ourselves. That's what we thought. He let us try. That's what God does. He gave us free will. He honors the free will. He responded to the choice we made and to the way that we wanted to fix it. So now watch what happens. <clears throat> we start in the garden, a place of fellowship and love. It's not forced. It's free will, the relationship. And we choose, but we end up choosing our own way. We use our free will to separate ourselves, to go another way and to be separated from God. Sin. And that then opens up a journey. And the first part of the journey is thousands of years with us in the world on our own trying to fix it. <laughs> Look at this. No direct interaction with God. Will we get back to God on our own? Will we do it? That's the question. We think we'll do it, and we think that we'll head back towards God now that we've messed up. Oh, we can fix this. But the answer is we don't only not head back towards God, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. We go to the flood. By the way, Justine's going to do the flood next week. Phenomenal. Uh, Tower of Babel. All of these things that we looked at in the video. So number three, then God says, okay, I made you to have a relationship with you. You separated yourself. It's not working out. So I'm going to try the third thing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start having a relationship with one person. Usually I don't look at one person when I'm doing something like this, but you're a pretty good person. You make a good Abraham, okay? So the point is, is he's, he starts to have a relationship with one person to show the world what a relationship with him looks like and his descendants, of course. See? So what happens is he reestablishes relationship with a person and his descendants and the question that's being asked here is, are his promises enough? Because remember what God promised Abraham, amongst other things. He promised him the land of Israel, took him out of Ur, brought him into Israel, and he said, this is your land. Now, a famine comes, the people go down into Egypt. After the famine was over, the question that we have to ask is, why didn't they go back to the land that God gave them? He gave them Israel, not Egypt. Why did they stay in Egypt? It's so simple. We would have made the same choice. Israel's kind of a rocky, high place, deserty kind of place. It's not terribly fruitful and productive. Because of Joseph sparing the Israelites through the famine, they ended up in the land of Goshen, which was the most valuable land on the face of the earth. So they wanted to stay. It looked better for them to stay in Egypt because of this rich land than it did to go back to where God promised. And because of that, they ended up in bondage, slaves. Which is what those choices always do for all of us. Whenever we choose what looks good to us and not what God is saying is better, it ends up in a bondage. So then it's, you know, here's what we say to ourselves, right? Well, just give me the rules. If it's just relationship, that's a little unbounded. That's a little, just tell me what the rules are. And by the way, whole lot of rules in first five books. You guys have been reading them. You know, a whole lot of rules, right? Not really. Those are all for the priests and for other things to show you how really holy God is, how really different he is. But here's what's happening with us. Just 10 commandments. And they're not like that hard. Honestly, you can kind of sum them up like this. Kind of like treat God as holy and respect him. And kind of do the same thing with other people. 
don't kill them and don't steal from them and don't cheat on them and don't, you know, cheat with their wives and don't do that kind of stuff. This, is, this shouldn't be like hard. <laughs> Honestly, if we were going to get it right, this feels like the moment. Because these 10 little rules are 10 simple little rules. And what happens is nobody is able to live up to them. Nobody. So, all right, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we think. See, I'm, you know, I'm slow, but I'm not completely stupid, I say, as a human being, which I am slow and not completely stupid, but, you know, but you get the point. Now, watch. Here's what's going to happen. If I do good, good things happen to me. Really, let's be more careful about that, about what's in Judges. If I follow God, if I pursue a relationship with God, then good things happen to the people in Judges. That's what happens. But once they get prosperous, they start going after other things, including other gods. And when they do, bad things happen. Now, you would think after like five or six or seven of these cycles, you would start figuring it out, wouldn't you? You wouldn't you get to the place where you would say, geez, you know, if I seek after God first, good things happen to me. I become really prosperous. And then anytime I don't seek after God first, like these really bad things happen. If I go after other stuff. So I should just go after God, right? Wouldn't you think you would learn from that? Nah, we end up doing what's right in our own eyes. You know? Still doing that same thing that was in that video, taking our choice, our way. All right, kings. Here's what we understand something. God is not the one who gave us kings. He gave us kings, but because we requested them. What we said was, is this relationship thing isn't working. These rules things isn't working. This, this cycle of good and bad isn't working. Give us a king to make us do it right. Give us a king like other nations. Just give us a king. So God says, okay, and gives them a king. And what happens is the king ends up taking their sons for his slaves and their daughters for his concubines and their land for his own. So it sucks. It doesn't work at all. Because we're broken as human beings, including kings. So finally, after letting us do this for thousands of years, thousands of years trying to get back to God, even with him helping us with relationships and rules and judges and kings and all this kind of stuff. Finally, it just becomes to the point to where God says, I need to cut it off. Not unlike the flood, things are just too whack in Israel and I'm going to stop it. I'm going to reset the clock. And so, oh, I'm sorry. Oops, prophets. This is the one how in the world didn't we get this one? Here's what God says. If you do this, oh, I'm not going to look at anybody again. If you do this, I'm going to do that. And then they do this, and that happens. <laughs> and that happens like over and over and over. And you would think at some point in time you would go, geez, you know, when God tells me not to do something, I'm not going to do it because I don't want what's going to happen. Do we do that? In our own lives, right now, today, does that stop you every time? <laughs> okay, now, like I say, it gets whack, and we have a similar thing happening in Israel that happened with the world with the flood. See the connection? See the repeat? See the fingerprint that's rippling through time of these similar themes over and over? And what we get to is exile. The ten tribes have already been wiped out. 
never to come back. The two southern tribes get exiled to Babylon. But then, in a miracle, in, in 70 years, which is unheard of, things totally change in Babylon, and the Babylonian king sends back a significant portion of the Israelites back into the land. So now we're on the return journey. You see this? We took a journey where we were supposed to be finding God, but we just got further and further and further away. And to where we could not ever defend again the choices that we were making and how we make them. So now God is starting to say this. I'm going to bring you home my way. So watch what happens now. Watch him undo all of this stuff that we think. The first thing is prophets. God speaks. People listen. Here's what he says to the prophets. There's more. Don't be stuck here. Don't think it's about this. There's more. You're back from the land. Things have really changed in your heart. I got it. But there's more. Seek for the more. Now, they look to a king, but it turns out he's not really much of a king. He's still under Babylon, and he's not like a king like David or Solomon, or, you know, he's not a king king, you know? So there's something more. No real authority, right? So then we get these pseudo-judges, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, these people like this. So once again, maybe they're supposed to be our leaders, right? These more godly, priestly type people. And they certainly did a very nice job. And still, what God was saying the whole time through them was, there's more. I want you to go for the more. I'm trying to bring you to more. Always understand something about your relationship with God at every moment, in every day, in every moment that you are tempted, in every moment that you are in glory, in every moment. Always remember something. God is trying to bring you more. He is infinite. He is so far beyond who you are that what he's always trying to do is bring you more. He's not trying to take anything from you or steal anything from you like the snake said to Eve. He's trying to bring you into more. The problem is, is when he does it, it usually ends up hurting us. So he's trying to bring us into more in a way that won't hurt us, that we won't get hubris. And so the judges, so it's more, it's the law. There it is, the law comes back. You know, we didn't obey it, we didn't follow the rules before, but now we're going to follow the rules. And to this day, that happened, uh, we're talking 2,600 years ago or so. Uh, no longer than that. Well, no, 2,600 years, yeah. So exiles in 600s and 500s. So the point is that people of the law, and, and to this day, 2,600 years later, the Jewish community as a whole is still trying to be right by the law. That's what they're trying to do. Trying to do the rules right so they can be right. They stop there. But God didn't. In fact, what he was doing through all the upper and all the lower was, he gave us the law to do what? So that we would obey it? No, he gave us the law so that we would discover that we couldn't obey it. As simple as it was, that we were not going to be able to do it. That's why he gave the law. It was a tutor to teach us that we needed something more. And so praise God, on this Easter Sunday, we get Jesus. A restored relationship. It's like Abraham had, but do understand something. Jesus, Jesus here on earth with those disciples isn't like terribly intimate. It's very close as far as people in the world are, but it's not the kind of intimacy that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have. And so even Jesus says, it's better that I go away because when I do, I'm going to point you to something more, something better. And what's he point us to? 
the Holy Spirit who comes in and makes you new. And now it's not Jesus over here and me over here. It's Holy Spirit in me, having made me new, living with me. He counsels us. He, gives, he brings us into true intimacy by always working, by putting a heart inside of us to love God and to go after that love and to help us get there. But even then, the Holy Spirit is a deposit because there's still something more. Heaven, freed from this body, intimate with God in ways that as intimate as we've ever been, we've only scratched the surface of. Intimate with God in the way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. Literally one with Him. This is His goal. Do you see it? The whole of human history was, let us try it on our own. When we discovered that we weren't going to make it, then He would start to show us His way to get back. Now the part that we're on today in this graph is of course Jesus. It's Easter. The whole point of the flow of history, his story, is that we couldn't get back to God despite him giving us every chance and helping us in all the ways we just saw. We couldn't get back to him on our own. So God had to do it himself. Slight warning. That. That's what it took. We're going to find out that it's much more than what you're thinking right now, even about that. But can I just say, that's what it took. And understand something about that. He made the one who did not know sin. Jesus never sinned. But he did become sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus himself never sinned. He never, ever, ever failed to do what the Lord was leading. He always did whatever the Lord was leading. That's the definition of sin. He never disobeyed God in any way, even to the point of this moment. Because you remember when he was in the garden... He was praying to be delivered from this moment so hard that his sweat became like drops of blood. But in the end, he was saying, nonetheless, not my will, yours. See it? Remember, we're reading the old to understand how much richer the new is than what we know. So let me just take this verse and show you its corollary in the Old Testament, written by Isaiah 600 years or so before Christ. Listen to this. This is 600 years before Jesus. You are not going to find another person who ever fulfills this, even close. But listen to this. 600 years before Jesus, listen to what the prophet God has to say about this moment. It was our pains he carried. Does it look like that? Our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. We, we think anybody who goes through something terrible like that must have done something wrong, right? That's our way of thinking. But this is a man who's done absolutely nothing wrong. Instead, what he's done is he's taken every single decision that any of us have ever made to go our own way and separate from God. Every single decision 
has been placed on God. In fact, let me show you something about this picture to make it a little richer. And that's a euphemism for what I really mean. You see the ripping on there? The ripping of his skin? Some people can say that's too much. It wouldn't have been that bloody. I want to tell you something. This was a cat of nine tails that he was being whipped with. That is a leather piece that has metal barbs woven into it. And so when they whip and pull, the whip isn't the problem, it's the pull. Because the metal barbs go in and they rip the skin. Now watch, what is that doing? What does that mean? Every single time that we, any of us, have made a decision to go our own way, we are ripping ourselves from him. Do you see it? This is us personified. This is our decisions on him made objective, personified, ripping us. We rip ourselves away from him, and this is what it does to him. And so there he is. We thought that God, we thought he brought on himself that God was punishing from his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. If you need to pay for something, if you, if you separate yourself and something needs to be paid, once it's paid, it's paid. You can't go in and pay it again, right? If someone pays your ticket, it's paid. You can't go to the court and give them more money. <laughs> They'll take it. But it's not paying for anything because it's already been paid. He took the punishment and that made us whole through his bruises. We get healed. The economy of God is so upside down from the way that we think. It's just extraordinary. But watch this. This is the part. Now we're starting to get to the really good stuff here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. What, uh, even more, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. What chapter are we in of the Bible that has like, you know, a whole lot of books and a whole lot of chapters? Where are we? If you were to open your Bible, where are you right now? If you were to just look at all of time, where are you right now? You can't get any earlier than this and be about us because this is the first us. And right here in the first us, as the video pointed out, there's a thing that is being said that makes no sense and doesn't make any sense for thousands of years until Christ. Tell me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Tell me what that means. Can you? Tell me before Jesus, you lived, you know, 10 days before Jesus is crucified or 10 days before he was born, either way. Tell me how to explain, how, how do you explain that verse? So this is right at the very beginning of the Bible. It's obviously incredibly important. It has to do with the whole of everything. And there's this statement that nobody can explain. Until when? The minute Jesus is on that cross. It's the only explanation. penalty for sin is death that man knew no sin and he just died 
How can this be? creation itself cannot contain an innocent man dying. that happened. That, that's not a film where they're adding something to it. This is what scripture says. And here's what it means. The world had become crusted. It had become encased in a dead, deep, dried up, horrible crust. And the minute that Christ was on that cross and died, Satan was thinking to himself, I won. <laughs> I did it. The Savior is dead. And the problem was, is that the penalty for sin is death. And this guy hadn't sinned. So how did he die? Why did he die? What's going on here? The old reality, the old thing cannot contain the thing that has just happened. And like a plant coming up through dry, crusty ground, it, it breaks through and creates a a earthquake that splits the temple in, not the temple, but the veil of the temple in two. What's the veil of the temple? The thing that separates us from God. And the earthquake splits because we're no longer separated. Because someone's paid for your sins, so you're no longer separated by your sins. <laughs> right? This is what's happening here. It is phenomenal. And it's not just that he paid for your sins. Always remember, it's about new life. What we celebrate on Easter is not the cross. <coughs> it's this.
I've showed that almost every Easter since I came out, and I apologize to people who have seen that. But I can never watch that without having something inside of me at the very deepest levels that just goes, it's not, I don't even, it's not, I don't even know how to describe it. It's the hope of the world. It's the answer to everything. Christ risen again. New life. That he then pours out on whoever wants it. If they'll receive what he did on the cross, he'll give them resurrection. And, and here's the sermon I was going to do. I want to show it to you. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That happened in Genesis 3, and, and that is thousands and thousands of years away from Christ even appearing. And so I wanted to tell you a message like this. It goes like this. This is, really, this is that sermon real short. Whatever problem you're facing, God's been there a long time already. And he's got it. And he's working a plan that you have no idea about. Now, that's a pretty good sermon, right? Right? And wouldn't that be worth the price of admission? You know, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, wait till you hear this. Because now I'm getting to the place to where he peeled the thing back. And he showed me something more precious than gold, more precious. I, I have in my mind this image of peeling it back, and there is this light of glory. And here's what that is. In order to get it, you have to do something for me. You have to trust me. Just a, this is a short one. <coughs> for two seconds, <coughs> I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to put yourself, think of yourself as God prior to the physical creation. So your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this beautiful, loving, incredible, magnificent relationship. Do you see how good it feels? Do you see the love that there is? God is love. And he is so, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so in love with one another that they are completely and utterly one. This is the glory that you're experiencing. This is the love you're experiencing. This is the wonder of it all. And I want you to feel it and get it down deep in your bones. This is so incredible. And now I just want you to see that what comes out of that quite naturally is God saying, I want to create more to enjoy this. And that's the moment that mankind comes into being, essentially, into his mind. And right there, as you are thinking about creating more to be just like you and you're enjoying, you're reveling in, it's going to be so wonderful to have more to experience this incredible oneness, this incredible love. At the very moment that you think that, there is another thought that comes with it. And that is, open your eyes, this. The minute that you think about creating mankind to be with you, the minute, the nanosecond that you think about that, another thought is in your mind, and here's what it is. In order to really be with him, it's going to take that. Now, again, we look at the physical of that and are repulsed by it, as we should be. But I want to show you something. That's not the real depth of it. All of the physical is pointing to the deeper spiritual. 
Because when Jesus is on that cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's what's being said. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who have been eternally one, because of the creation of mankind, Jesus is going to be separated from them. Not by any choice he made of his own. Not because he wants to. But he's going to be separated from the Father and the Spirit. In some fashion. We don't know what it is. It's way beyond us. And all of the physical that God gives us to look at is to help clue us into the much more deep, the much more difficult, the much more painful that Jesus had to do. When he was sweating his drops of blood, he wasn't worried about being on that cross, even though I'm sure he wasn't looking forward to it. What he was worried about was the moment when he would become sin and he would be separated in that sin from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That was the moment that he said, if there's any other way, take this away from me. This is the moment that he had to press into so hard that his sweat became like drops of blood. This is the moment that he did not want. Do you see it? Do you feel it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were God and you knew this, you just experienced it for a second when you closed your eyes and went through that little exercise. If you were God and you knew this, would you still choose to create us? Don't think about the beating on the cross. Think about eternally one and having to be separated. Would you choose that? Honestly, I don't know that I would. It's too high a price, isn't it? Something about it, isn't it too high a price, isn't it? What's God's answer to that question? Absolutely. Yes. Would he pay that price? Yes, he did. Get something for a second. God chose you. We always think of our relationship with him as us choosing him. Free will, it's true. But what you need to understand is he looked at the cross and he knew the depths of the separation that he would experience. And he looked at that and he said, I choose you. I choose you, 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 I choose you. You see it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? Anybody who will receive what he's done. That's the joy. You know what God's really saying? You're worth it. <laughs> you are worth it. Utterly, completely, fantastically, eternally. You are worth it. Now, all, all there's, there's going to be all sorts of trials and tribulations, failures coming up short, disasters and worse. There's going to be all sorts. Of, when he chose you, when he chose you, not you plural mankind, when he chose you, he knew that there was going to be all sorts of trials and tribulations and disasters and problems. <laughs> no, I shouldn't have been looking at you, should I? His girlfriend patted his hand like, it's okay, honey.
Of course there's going to be all those things. That's what he's shown us in his word. But he's going to get you home. He's going to get you all the way around and all the way back. You see it? Now that we have learned the evil, now that we have learned ourselves, he has a path back to heaven, true oneness, the deepest intimacy and love. And here's the thing that I just feel like, if you'll just receive this, if you'll, we're going to pray about it right now, but if you'll just receive this, here's what God is trying to say. You are worth it. I can tell you what I think he wants to do is I want, he wants you to grasp this so much that it starts to levitate you. <laughs> that you start to come off the ground which has anchored you into the physical reality and the failures and everything else. And he wants to elevate you into his kingdom, into his heart, into him. I really think God wants us to just float out of here today. Not have to walk. Because he's done something in our heart which has shown us something. You were worth every nanosecond of it. All the pain, all the difficulty, all the time, all the issues, all the everything. You are worth it. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you. Praise you. I am asking you to fill us. Holy Spirit, come and fill us and lift us. Just begin to lift us. God, I'm asking you to get this word down deep into people's hearts. Get that word. You are worth it. You are worth it. God, <laughs> you speak it to our hearts. You were totally worth it to me. Absolutely without hesitation. You were worth it despite the high cost. You are worth it. 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 Thank you, God. Reach down in front of you and 